put up your hands nice and high if you can hear me. Like higher than that. You guys are tiny in my screen. I can hardly see. All right, awesome. Great. Well, welcome everybody. Uh yeah. So this is a little bit of a, a, a fill-in here. This is a probably the weirdest online church experience that I've had to date, and I've had some weird ones. This one is odd because I'm actually in my studio on my knees, and here comes Mercy. Uh, we got about, I don't know, 60, 80 centimeters of snow in the last 30 hours, and uh, there's more coming on the way, so I thought, you know what, let's just not... Um, Yes, you can have a bear pot. This is uh, this is home church at its finest. But the weird thing about it is my wife is actually, Faith's actually doing, she's a photographer. She's doing uh, Christmas minis downstairs. And so she has families coming in every 20 minutes uh, doing uh, Christmas photos in our living room. So my other two kids are up here uh, hanging out with me. And of course, now they're deciding to move around. There's Jira. Yeah, there we go. We just have to bear with us. I hope you guys are safe. Because uh, this is, this is, this is a, that's a doozy snowstorm. So that's why I'm not there and why I'm here. And if you hear my children or other things in the background, that is actually what's going on. And so I, I apologize for that. There's literally nothing I can do about it. I was actually sitting on a chair and then uh, Faith called up to take the tiny chair that I was sitting on for the photos. And so now I have actually nothing even to sit on. Poor me. But this is a really interesting time. Uh, and I think what, what Judah shared is uh, really remarkable. I hadn't seen that video yet. And I think it's really incredible what he's doing, uh, what they're doing, and uh, the work that they're part of. The beard that he's growing is really cool. Um, and so what I wanted to do is actually take a look at the book of Acts and the story of Acts in the next couple of weeks as we kind of come into Advent, as we come into kind of the season of Christmas. Um, and we can uh, figure that out. Could you, Mercy, you need to plug in your sound. Yeah. All right. So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine, if you can, through all the distractions, if you can imagine the city of Rome. Now, not the modern city of Rome with like the gelato stands and the cafes and, and the tours, like the ancient city of Rome at the peak of its of its empire, the peak of its of its beauty or the, or the beginning of the peak of the golden age. Now, if you're familiar with the term uh, Pax Romana, uh, but if you have uh, heard of the term Pax Romana or peace across Rome, it's kind of like the height of Roman rule, the height of Roman peace and a really significant time in Roman history. And it was around kind of 50 BC, 150 AD. There's about a 200-year window, which is kind of Rome's golden age. And the Pax Romana was instituted by Caesar Augustus. So after Julius Caesar was assassinated, there was kind of civil war, and uh, Mark Antony and, and Octavian, who became Augustus, kind of fought it out to kind of take ownership over the empire. And Octavian kind of becomes the first kind of emperor of Rome, and he institutes he institutes Rome as a, the first official empire. And in that time, what he did is he consolidated power, he consolidated uh, trade routes and 
kind of cities and kind of the, the road system and the mailing system. And he instant, instituted peace across the entire empire and which really was the first time that it happened in, in Roman life. And so the burgeoning empire of Rome, peace across this enormous swath of land was led by this leader, Augustus Caesar. And what that meant was that trading now became actually quite feasible, the safe as it had ever been. Uh, cities could kind of share uh, a culture and design and architecture. And what it meant is there was actually no wars for Rome to fight anymore. They kind of conquered, they weren't fighting each other anymore and there really was no one else, no, no major adversaries to fight. So all that energy and money and and kind of energy went into Rome itself. And so Augustus had this great quote that he said, you know, he, he, he grew up in the city of Rome, built a stone, and he left it a city of marble. Because during his time, he built all these beautiful, elaborate marble temples and buildings and aqueducts. And, and it just transformed the city into kind of its, its, its glory. And it kind of continued on. So that, that, that imperial kind of movement that Augustus started passed on to all the other emperors. And though it was politically unstable at the top, and it was, uh, if you were a slave, it was a horrible place to be. Uh, if you're a Roman citizen, this is kind of the best time to be alive as a Roman citizen. And this is really interesting because while this was happening, while all this stuff was happening with Caesar Augustus and kind of this Roman imperial rule, <laughs> someone's at the door. That was my third child. Why not all three at the same time? Come on up and uh, interrupt. That's great. As all of this is happening, uh, there's something else happening in this time. Something else is kind of taking place during Pax Romana. And it's kind of insignificant, actually. It, to, to Rome, it didn't really mean anything. It's like a, like a whisper, like a, a dust particle kind of floating through the air. But the institution of this new kind of cultic practice... Uh, took place from this leader from like the far, far Judean wilderness, this little tiny town, this little, this man, Yeshua of Nazareth. He had this following, this kind of cult following of, of people. And at the time of Rome, around 60 to 70 to 80 AD, these followers of Yeshua or these Christians or people of the way had made their presence known in the city of Rome. And that's really weird because why would a, a, a Jewish leader or a Jewish uh, rabbi have any influence in Rome? How does that even happen? Where does that where did that take place? How did that come about? And at the time of kind of 60 AD, after Augustus had died, there, there was another, another couple of emperors. Um, you know, around 60 to 70 AD, somewhere in there. All of Jesus' earliest disciples or his followers, as a rabbi had, as we, we knew, they're all dead. They're mostly all gone. They're mostly all dead. And yet this movement of Jesus' followers had consistently built and had a growing influence in the city of Rome. Not to the point that it's destabilizing, not to the point that, that they're really actually worried about it, just kind of a, an, an aggravation. And not because really of who they were or what they believed, it was how they lived their lives. It was odd. It was their beliefs in practice that made them stand out because they, they would live their lives differently. And their religion asked different things from them 
than all the other religions that were present in Rome at the time. It's not so much the belief around their their Messiah coming back to life. I mean, in, in the mythology, that's not uncommon for gods to die and be resurrected. It was what that Messiah was actually asking of them in terms of how they related to others, which made them weird, made them stand out. And at this time, there's, there's actually, in the city of Rome, there's two men having a conversation about Jesus of Nazareth. And one is a follower of Jesus, and one is kind of on the fence. And one is actually, they're, they're both learned men, they're both, they're both smart men. One is actually a physician, but a, a doctor by trade, and the other is like a high-ranking noble. He's rich, he's powerful, he's part of this kind of aristocracy of Rome that had now been hearing about Jesus for quite a while and not really sure what to make of it. And this one guy had some questions. He's kind of like investigating, who is this Jesus? What is this movement? Why am I hearing about this? These beliefs in practice are strange to me. I want to know more. And so these two guys get in the dialogue and they start having some sort of a conversation and some sort of investigative conversation. And then something happens where they actually can't have a conversation anymore. And so one of them decides to write a letter to the other. And this letter isn't just a simple, you know, couple fold up scrolls or something. It's actually quite an exhaustive letter that he decides to write. And it was probably written around this late 60s AD. And to put a, you know, imagine Rome at this time is the Colosseum is just about to be constructed. Like we're coming into like classic Roman uh, idea, ideology practice with the gladiatorial arenas and big stage and big theater and, and famine and apartment buildings and imperial dominance. And, and this guy's having questions about Jesus and his friend is writing him a letter about it. And we're actually very lucky because we have his letter that he decided to write. And if you have your Bibles with you in your hand, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. Now, it's sad. We've just gone through Mark, and I love the Gospel of Mark because Mark is like raw narrative, as I've shared many, 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 many times. It's raw narrative. It's just such compelling storytelling. And this letter, this series of stories is very different. Uh, no less compelling, but written in a very different way for a very different reason. And I think what's what's fascinating about this is if we could kind of get into the moment of if we could imagine the author of this of this letter starting to write it, we could actually get a real sense of the purpose and the intention. And then it would actually really help us to understand the flow from it. And we have attributed this book, the Gospel of Luke, to Luke for two thousand years, and it really didn't. That really wasn't It really wasn't questioned until like the 19th century during liberal scholarship. But most people uh, forever have, have believed this is written by Luke. And here is how Luke begins his letter. Luke 1, he says, So many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us. Using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the very from the story's very beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable 
Theophilus. So you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. I think what happens in the church is we often, if, you, if you've ever read the, read the Bible or you, you're trying to investigate Jesus, you're trying to understand Christianity, we so often gloss over these most crucial, like what are seemingly innocuous details about the scriptures themselves. And I think in a very similar way where Mark kind of like does these like subtle little ships with words and plays and scenes and motif, Luke's doing it right here. He's like laying out exactly his intention, his purpose, his reason. And he's, I think he's giving us the secret sauce that's not a secret of the entire Christian witness. Well, who is Luke? Well, you can find out it like internally through the other, you know, New Testament, other letters and stuff. But he's, he's actually a friend of Paul. He's a physician by trade. He is uh, from Antioch. He is. He can read. He can write. He's probably quite wealthy. He's not. He's not poor. He's not a slave. He's a free citizen, and he's friends with Paul. And you can assume then that he was a part of a lot of the stories of Paul. That he was. He was there. He was shadowing. He's kind of written into his own story without explicitly saying it. He saw Paul. He was with Paul. He was on the shipwreck. He's all part of all these different stories. But he was not a follower of Jesus initially. He did not spend time with Jesus personally he was not an eyewitness he wasn't there like mark and peter he wasn't there around the table he didn't see these um, amazing miracles happen he heard of them he was testified to of the of the person of jesus and was compelled to believe through eyewitness accounts and then he had his own transformational experience with jesus personally and and began, began his life of faith and he's talking to Theophilus, who is a, probably, most likely, a Roman nobleman. That he, 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 probably through Paul, got to know Jesus in a very similar way. That these eyewitness accounts, these personal transformations, these beliefs and actions had touched the person of Theophilus to the point where he was really, really curious. Who is Jesus? What is he about? Why, why is this movement in Rome even taking place? And so Paul and Luke have this dialogue with Theophilus and they try they're trying to compel Theophilus to commit his life to Jesus and somewhere in that dialogue somewhere in that relationship somewhere in that 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 triangle of, of relationship Nero executes Paul the relationship with Paul and Theophilus likely stops uh, Luke is not present he can't talk about it anymore so he decides Theophilus I'm going to write this out for you I'm going to painstakingly go back and have all these eyewitnesses. I'm going to com com compile this story like an investigative journalist. I'm going to put it together in this like new kind of genre that he kind of invented, this investigative storytelling of the things that happened with Jesus and all these eyewitness people and all these you know, people that were there. People saw Jesus do this. People who were raised from the dead. All the things that Luke mentions, he has collected information on about the person of Jesus. And then he says, the beginning of Acts, Theophilus, remember that first letter that I wrote about Jesus? Well, here is Jesus in action. Here is the church or the ecclesia or the gathering of people, a part of the way in action, in society. And the beginning of Acts starts with Jesus and it ends with Paul in Rome. 
here, Theophilus, here is how Paul came to you to talk about Jesus. Here's the whole story from beginning with Mary and Joseph birthing this little babe to all the way to Rome where the gospel is being shared. How could this tiny child born in Bethlehem have any influence on you, Theophilus, a noble, like nobleman at Roman in the Roman aristocracy? How, how, how did that happen? I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to do it painstakingly. I'm going to do, I'm going to do it with authority. And so that you can trust, Theophilus, what you've heard. That we're not making it up. That we actually have these collections of people. And what I think is really, really interesting about this gospel, about this combination of Luke and Acts, it's kind of part one and part two, that Luke has kind of exhaustively gone through. What I find so fascinating about it is, I had this moment last night, I was just pondering, I was like, it was, it's weird to, to have shifted from the Markan account, like Mark's gospel, that you can kind of assume, as we've talked about before, or, or you can read yourself, that Mark is probably there, he's probably around Jesus, he probably saw Jesus, so he has this like, extra authority, like this is something that I saw, to transfer on to Luke, to, to trust someone that didn't see. I felt uncomfortable. Oddly, because it's like, I, of course, it's the Bible and it's in the canon and it's a part of the New Testament. But how can we trust Luke as much as I trust Mark or John? And then I, it just struck me. It's that all of us are the Lukes. None of us have seen Jesus face to face. None of us were there on the shores of Galilee I did not see Jesus walk across the water. I wasn't there at the Mount of Transfiguration. I didn't eat the bread that he multiplied. And none of us have. No one for the last near 2,000 years did any of those things. All of us are here in any shape or form, at, at, at any point in our faith journey, at any point in our relationship with Christ. If we're questing, if we're searching out, if we've been followers of Jesus for our whole life long, all of us are here because of the witness of somebody else. It is through testimony. It is through the witness of our mouths, of the impact of the personal relationship with Jesus that we have had, that transfers, that seeds imagination, and it seeds empathy, and it seeds a new paradigm, a new way to believe that invites us into relationship with Jesus. There's no other way that it happens. The Bible seeds, the Bible can lead us there, but that's a witness of somebody else. Our, our church community can lead us there, but it's a witness of somebody else. You can actually physically witness to somebody else and invite them into a salvation, but that is through the witness of somebody else. The only way that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, weaves in and around the hearts and minds of people is through people. See? The only way it happens. And it's those little verses, those little like little things are, I believe, almost entirely taken for granted. Luke says, I wasn't there, but it, I was impacted. You weren't there, but you're impacted. Here are the stories, the witnesses of from my life to you, so that you can believe and you can follow and know that this person, Jesus Christ, is who he says he is. And you can be invited into relationship with him.
Why Axe? Why Axe now? Why Axe near Christmas? Why are we going into these stories? Well, I think it's, it's, it's kind of simple. I am here as an interim transitional pastor. I'm, I'm not your person. I'm not your, your uh, permanent pastor at this point. I'm in kind of a, a transitional role. And I, and I believe, and I've shared with you guys before, that uh, I think the entire church is in transition. I had some, uh, I was at a pastor's retreat a couple weeks ago. I was able to share on a panel about uh, the church and how the church is trying to kind of reach the next generation. And it led to all kinds of discussions around the, the, the big C church and where we find ourselves as pastors, as churches uh, in North America and even, even in the world. I think there's a recognition that the, the church itself is in transition. And, and so often when we find that we're in a transition in the church, we, we, we feel that something's not working right. It's not, it's not kind of, it's, it's grinding. Uh, we don't know where to go. So we, we, we look at books, we look at whatever, we, we talk to people. And oftentimes the impulse is to go to the book of Acts and to look at the stories of Acts. And I think it's most appropriate to do that because we can see the early followers of Jesus compelled by the Spirit as they outflowed as they, as they shared from, from what Jesus was doing in them, what was the byproduct of what they were doing? And so I want to just take the next couple of weeks kind of leading to Christmas to just help us as Blue Mountain community and help us as parts of the larger church, as followers of Jesus, to really just sit, learn, play through, investigate this ecclesia, this early church, this this. Uh, this band of followers of people of the way and what do they do how do they respond uh, what was their impulse how, how do they how do they what were their what were their beliefs in action and how did it literally shape and reshape rome the empire and the world and i think the first clue which is not a clue it's explicitly stated we have to change our mindset it's, it's like it's right there it's through our own witness, our own sharing of our own transformation with Jesus. Luke says it right away. This is how it happens. It's through transmission of witness, testifying to the work of Jesus in our own hearts and minds. That is how the gospel of Jesus is spread. So the next couple weeks, that's what we're going to do. Uh, thank you so much for uh, tolerating this very chaotic uh, uh, setting uh, that 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 I find myself in. Uh, before we, I, I kind of sign off and spare you more Jurassic Park uh, video games. I'm just gonna pray and then we'll, and then we'll move on. Jesus, I do thank you that uh, you showed up so long ago, and I thank you that uh, your spirit uh, made such impression and transformational uh, impressions on people's lives. That their beliefs and their paradigms and the way they view the world radically changed because of a reunion with, with the Father through you. I thank you for people like Luke and these conversations with people like Theophilus that um, probably unintended to have such impact on the world over. But that your spirit guided Luke to do this, that he was curious and investigative and an eloquent writer. And that we can kind of delve into his, his trove of information and stories and to see how you have shaped the world through your community. And I pray that we have open minds and open hearts as we are trying so earnestly to do the same. So continue to lead and guide our con congregation, continue to lead and guide us as people and help us to be bold 
and uh, unapologetic in our sharing of our own personal stories. That we don't need to get it right theologically. We don't need to have, have all the, the answers. We don't need to know um, necessarily even what to say. But we just need to be uh, courageous to share our own stories of how you've changed our life. And, and Jesus, I pray that you continue to do so. That you continue to lead, guide, shape, reform, convict, uh, and, and just shape us uh, to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen.